Last week we looked at Mark, we started looking at Mark chapter 13. And uh, where we were last week is that Jesus and the disciples had just left, uh, left the temple for the last time. Okay, this is, the, this is the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. Okay, he's left the temple and he's never going back there again. This is the last time Jesus is in the temple. The glory of the Lord has left. And as they're exiting, one of the disciples exclaims how amazing these stones are. Do you remember? And uh, some of these stones were 100 tons in weight. Okay, 100 tons in weight. And to help us understand that, the average weight of the pyramid stones, okay, those in Egypt, is two and a half tons. Okay, two and a half tons, 100 tons. So they're walking past these, these, um, these stones that are just incredible. And, uh, and one of them says, this is amazing. And then Jesus says that this temple with its 100 ton stones is going to be raised right down to the ground. So that one stone is not left on top of the other. And then the group then, then, then crosses through, through the valley and they climb up to the Mount of Olives that kind of looks down on the temple. And this conversation continues in Mark chapter 3 verse, sorry, Mark chapter 13 verse 3. And from where they were sat, they would have had a, a great view of the temple complex. Okay, that's what it looks like now. Not so impressive. But if you can imagine this massive wonderful temple that was white and 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 you would read you know folks from history who would say when you're looking at it that you know the gold and the white was so bright in the sun that it would blind you that's what they were looking down on and they were about 200 feet higher than the temple complex so they're looking down on the temple complex if you can imagine that in your mind's eye and as they're sat there thoughtfully thinking about what Jesus has just said Peter, James, John, and Andrew kind of sidle up to Jesus and ask him this in verse 4. They ask him, uh, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? What are the signs that we should look for? And I think that if we knew that the end was heading our way, we'd also appreciate a little bit of a heads up. Now, looking back from our vantage point in 2019, we know that what Jesus was prophesying about was the fall of the temple, and that that took place about 35 years later in AD 70, but they didn't know that then, right? And so they wanted to find out. But uh, interestingly, or not interestingly, because Jesus has a habit of doing this, he doesn't answer the question that they were asking, because to Jesus, the when and the how is really not very important. What Jesus essentially says is that that it's much more important that you are ready for it than you know the timing of it. So what he's saying is, is don't be afraid about those things in the future that you have little or no control over. Instead, prepare yourself for them. And that's our thought, our one thought here today is to resist fear, resist complacency, and instead what? Be prepared. Let's read that all together. Resist fear, resist complacency, be prepared. 
And so the first thing Jesus tells them is, don't freak out. Verse 7 says, says do not be alarmed. And instead in verse 5, they are told to watch out. They are told to watch out. Because freaking out and watching out are not the same thing. And in fact, you, if you're doing one, then you cannot really be doing the other, at least not very well. Because if you're freaking out, then you're not watching out. Instead, what you're doing is you're reacting to every little bump, every little squeak, every little noise, and, and, and every little sound, sound of the floorboards. Okay, you are freaking out. You're on high alert. You're not watching out. But if you're watching out, then you are ready. You are prepared. Which means if you're watching out, you're less likely to freak out. Right? But what are we supposed to watch out for? What are the disciples told to watch out for? Verse 5, that no one deceives you. That no one deceives you. They are told to watch out for false messiahs. And we just have to turn to Acts chapter 8 verse 9 to find out what one of those false messiahs looks like. His name is Simon the Sorcerer, which kind of sounds like he should be in Harry Potter's potions class. But Simon the Sorcerer was a real guy. And this was his reputation uh, in in Acts chapter 8, is that he he was rightly called the great power of God. Okay, so this guy, Simon the Sorcerer, was known, was rightly known as the great power of God. That was his reputation. That was his, his um, handle, his hashtag. You see, Simon had fooled everyone with his sorcery. He had a following. He was a hit. Until God, through Philip, and we read this in Acts chapter 8, out-awesomed Simon's awesomeness. And, and then Simon actually bowed his knee in front of the actual great power of God, and became a follower of Jesus Christ. But when we meet Simon in Acts chapter 8, he's, he's a false messiah, so we're told to watch out for them. And then we're also told in Mark chapter 13, verse 7, to watch out for, um, for uh, wars and rumours of wars. But... In the same verse, Jesus tells his disciples not to be alarmed. Which sounds a little bit strange. Because shouldn't we be concerned about wars and conflicts and skirmishes? Aren't these signs that our world is unravelling in front of our very eyes? But then Jesus says in verse 7... Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. When so many sinful human beings share this home that we call planet Earth, wars are expected, as are rumours of wars, whether they turn out to be true or just fake news. We should be expecting this. And Jesus says in verse 8 that nation will rise up against nation. And there will be earthquakes, there will be famines. Okay, he, he says a lot of will-bees, musts. And we live on a broken planet that is groaning for redemption. And verse 8 talks about them like birth pains. Okay, not Braxton Hicks, but the, you know, the real thing. These are birth pains. 
And it might seem like the time between the contractions is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. But the end is still not yet here. And when we think about labour pains, you know, I'm speaking from, not from personal knowledge, but I've heard it said that, that much as the labour pains hurt and cause us to cry out in pain, the end result is worth it. And the end result here is a new heavens and a new earth, a new order, the kingdom of the servant king, where truth and justice reign. That's what will happen after the birth pains. And so while we as a church have a responsibility you know, to be concerned and involved and you know, we should be there on the ground during these times of huge crisis, we should be doing it without freaking out. We need to stop reading the signs of the times like some tea leaves, you know, at the bottom of a cup of tea, hoping that we can somehow understand what it looks like. We need to stop allowing news reports to send us into a panic. And instead, we should be asking ourselves, how can I help? How can I make a difference? What, what, what difference is Jesus calling me as his representative, his ambassador on earth? What difference is he causing me to make? And for sure, if you're a Christian here, he's, call, he's calling you to make a difference. And a wonderful example of that is World Hope International, right? Who we support as a church. Uh, they, are, they are present in some of the hardest places on earth, showing Jesus' love to the poorest of the poor and those who are hit by crisis. And so we need to not freak out. Instead, we need to watch out. We need to resist uh, fear. We need to resist complacency. We need to be prepared. Now, one of the struggles with reading a passage like Mark chapter 15 is this. Um, How should we read it? What I mean is this. Were the events contained in Mark chapter 13, are they future events for those present at that moment in time but history for us and what that means is have they already been fulfilled or are they describing future events for everyone for us as well in which case are they yet to be fulfilled and there are many people who have many thoughts and there are many theories and uh, you know a lot more intelligent wise women and men than I have wrestled with this, but the short answer is, is both. What we're seeing in Mark chapter 13 are events that were were fulfilled within the lifetime of those living there, but we're also looking over the shoulder of those events to future events, okay? So, like I already mentioned, we... We, you know, we have the ruining of the temple that took place in AD 70. That's already happened. And this was a time of, of, uh, of horrendous suffering and persecution um, you know, for the Jews. As they rebelled against Rome and then Rome said, we're not going to have any of that. And so, they, and so they showed an incredible, brutal show of force during which not one of these 100-ton stones were left on top of the other. But as one writer wrote, this first fulfilment is a lens 
through which we look at a future fulfilment, the end times. And so through the lens of the fall of the temple, we look at a world here today where up to 60% of the church is, is, is undergoing some sort of uh, maybe persecution, like real, like real stuff going on in people's lives. 60, 60% of the church. And where we do see nation rising against nation, and where there are earthquakes and there are famines on an insane scale, and, this, and so this passage is helpful for us because it gives us an idea of where things are headed. And in light of all that, we're told not to freak out, but we're told to watch out in verse 5. And now verse 9 tells us that we are to be on our guard. We are to be on guard. And... What we see in verse 9 is that this lens moves from what's happening on a global scale and suddenly it focuses in. It's not what's on the news anymore. It's what's happening in your street, in your town. Verse 9 says this. You will be handed over to be flogged in the synagogues. So, so, so those places of community, of worship, of learning, they are turned into places, places of torture in the name of religion. And in, in verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, on account of me, sorry, verse 9. He says, he says on account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses. He says, on account of me. This is Jesus' fault. It's on account of him. And the word for witnesses is this word martyrion, which is where we get the word martyr from. And these things are happening on account of Jesus. If he didn't exist, or if he stayed up in heaven and just minded his own business and never came down, then these people would not be laying down their lives. And I don't know if you've, if you've seen it yet, but I mentioned it once already, but it's here throughout this passage, uh, these words will and must, over and over again, this must happen, this will happen, this must happen, this will happen. And so what Jesus is showing us here is not a rose garden view of faith, but he's, he's telling us like it is. And what he's saying is, is this in essence. If you believe in Jesus and submit to his rule, then it will put you on the wrong side of the culture. Which means that people won't like you. Which means that they will find you offensive like a bad smell. And you will have to pay for what you really believe. And these folks who are sat there on the Mount of Olives, you know, looking down, they all had to pay with their lives except for one. All of them were martyred because of Jesus Christ. Now, according to the World Watch List, uh, from, from Open Doors. Uh, there are about 215 million Christians 
across the world who face significant levels of persecution for their faith. Okay, 215 million. Now, I want that number to sink in, 250 million. It's hard for big numbers for Canadians, at least population-wise. It's hard for us to really grasp that, because I think we have like 37 people, 37 million people living in the whole of the country. But what that is, is that if you took every person who lives in this great nation, you multiplied it by a factor of 5.8, that's the number that you end up with, 215 million. And this is the number of Christians this moment in this world who are facing significant levels of persecution. And so we have North Korea, then we have Afghanistan, we have Somalia, we have Sudan, we have Pakistan, we have Eritrea, we have Libya, we have Iraq, we have Yemen, and we have Iran. These are the top 10 in 2018. And during this reporting period of uh, of, for the 2018 World Watch list, there were 3,066 Christians who were killed. There were 1,252 who were abducted, you know, and, and I know friends of one of them, a pastor in Malaysia, and he's never been found since. There were 1,020 who were raped or sexually harassed, and there were 793 churches that were attacked and for 30 countries of the top 50 countries, of, uh, of the top 50 most dangerous places for Christians, things are getting worse. This curve is going downhill. It's not improving. It's getting worse. And so the president and CEO of Open Doors USA says this about these statistics. He says that the world watch list isn't about the numbers, but about the people that those numbers represent. And I hope that you see that their stories of victory and resilience, and more than anything, I hope you see the powerful kingdom work that God is accomplishing in some of the most difficult countries in the world. And what I hope to this week is to send out this 60-page report so that you can have a look and see what is happening across the world. It's incredible. And so when Jesus says that we are to be on our guard, he's not, he's not saying it lazily. He's saying it with intent and with purpose. Because on account of Jesus, our brothers and sisters around the world are laying down their lives and one example is this lady called Hannah Cho. She's from, she's from uh, North Korea, and her husband was horrifically tortured in a labor camp because of her faith, because of his faith. She had six children, and there were two who died when they were very young. And she was separated from the rest of her family after fleeing, but still she holds on you know, to Christ. And so you think about that, what she's experienced, what she's walked through, how she's left home, how she has no idea um, how things are with the rest of her folks. And yet she's now in safety um, and she's still holding on to Christ. And her mother taught her one prayer. And this is the prayer that Hannah Cho prays every day for her country and for her family. She, she prays this, Hanunim, Hanunim. Lord, Lord, please help. Hanunim, Hanunim. Lord, Lord, please help. 
And that's just one of the 215 million. But we also have to take seriously Jesus' words in verse 10, where he says this, And the gospel must be preached, must first be preached to all nations. That the gospel, Jesus' good news of hope, must first be preached to all nations. And what that means is this, that even in the darkest darkness that humankind can possibly experience on earth, even in that that cesspit of horrendousness, that the light of the good news of Jesus is shining even there, and the darkness shall not overcome it. And then verse 11, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not a word for me as a pastor. I have to prepare. If I was to come up here and just, you know, I'm just going to wing it and see what the Holy Spirit says. That's not what this is talking about. This is, you know, it will be rubbish. Worst sermons ever, even worse than the ones which I preach. But... uh, what this is talking about is a very specific circumstance where circumstances outside of your control means that you're woken up in the middle of the night and you suddenly find yourself in a place where you did not ask and you were there and you're thinking, Lord, how do I represent you now? And he says, it's okay. I'm going to tell you what to say. Because it's the Holy Spirit speaking through you. And so what that means is that even now, with these 215 million, is that God is speaking through his people as they represent him in the blackest pits of injustice that this world has to offer. And so, you know, as a recap, we are to watch out for what's happening around the world. We are not to freak out. We are to watch out for what's happening in our communities, in our cities, in our streets, we are to be on guard, but it doesn't end there. Verse 12, verse 12 and 13 tells us that the conflict and the betrayal will even enter the home. Even enter the home. Verse 12. Brother will, be, will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children Will, will rebel against their parents and, and have them put to death. Isn't that incredible? That a verse like that is in the Bible? This, you know, the book which is supposed to be bringing us hope and it says something like that? You know, can you think if that was the case in your household? You, you may think that you have it, have it bad, but... You imagine this, where your own children, you know, they actually turn against you and they hand you over to the authorities. This is what happens when the kingdom of Jesus encounters the principalities and the powers of this dark world. This is what happens when the claims of Jesus Christ are taken seriously by those who call him Lord. We have to be ready to, we, we have to, be ready to count the cost. You see, following Jesus is not the path of least resistance. Following Jesus is not about through skipping through life, hoping that everybody likes you. Some of those closest to you will resent you. 
They will hate what you represent. They will not understand you. They will feel really betrayed by you. you and, and you will feel the same from them. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you know what that feels like. And that hurts. And there's no easy way for me to say this. But the path of taking up your cross and following Jesus will result in rifts in your family. And maybe those rifts actually can be healed. And we we should be praying for that and hoping for that. Maybe your example will draw your loved ones to him. But that's not necessarily the case. And that's what we see here. And that's why it's so important that after we've chosen not to freak out and we've, we've made a decision, decision to be on our guard, after we've made a decision to be ready that we would count the cost, we also have to reassure ourselves. We have to reassure ourselves with this statement in verse 13, that everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved Sure, how is, how, is, how is that an encouragement? How is that a, reassure, a, a, a reassurance? But it is. Because even when, even when your family abandons you, when they hurt you, when, you, when they hand you over to those who, who, who would harm you, you still have Christ. And more importantly, he still has you safe in his grip. And he's the one who will enable you to to truly stand firm with the armour of God on. That we would stand firm and after everything that we would stand. And as Hebrews 10 verse... Yeah. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Amen. And you can reassure yourself that no suffering that you are going through is wasted. And that God can redeem even that situation that you are going through. And never forget, even in the hardest times, that your church family is here. But more importantly, that the Lord is here and he has you. And also think about this, that he has gone through this himself. You know... We just read a few, a, a few chapters ago that his family tried to lock him up, right? And he was handed over to local councils. That will happen. He was flogged. He stood before, you know, the governors and the kings. He was arrested. He was brought into trial. And the Holy Spirit gave him the words to say. And so all that we read about in Mark chapter 13, Jesus has already done. He's already gone through it. And so how do we respond? What is our response with all that we've heard here? Our response is Philippians 4 verse 5 that says, The Lord is near. Therefore do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But it starts with recognising that the Lord is near. And so resist fear. Resist complacency. Be prepared. Uh, You know, and there are two extremes which we have to avoid when we look at Mark chapter 13. Um, 
One is fear and one is, 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 is complacency. And every human being leans either towards the one or leans towards the other. And so the first one is to resist fear. Because some of us are naturally afraid of the future, right? Maybe you're one of them. We ask ourselves things like, well, what happens if this takes place in my lifetime? What happens if I'm called to make a stand? And what happens if I fail the test? Well, there are two things I would like to say to you. First is that Jesus has this. Just like your salvation never depended on you in the first place, right? Jesus saved you. It was you didn't save yourself, he saved you. And just like your salvation didn't didn't rest on your works in the first place, so your life with Jesus does not rest on your works now. It depends on him. Your and so your responsibility is to place your trust in Jesus and to leave it there. Not to walk away with it and say, well, I'm going to keep my trust. No, it's to walk up to Jesus and say, here is my trust, and then walk away and leave it there with, with him. As Psalm 118 verse 8 says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. So take refuge in him, Psalm 118. Secondly, is to know that God redeems suffering and he does something wonderful through it, okay? That, you know, this is really key for us to understand because it's a hard truth that God redeems suffering and he can do something wonderful through it. As James chapter 1 verse 2 says, it says, Consider it pure joy, my, my, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith, it produces what? Perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so what this means is that through the suffering that you are experiencing, God is bringing you to a place where you lack nothing. And in fact, without this suffering, you would never reach that place where you lack nothing. And so with the loving hands, hand of a shepherd, Jesus is leading you to this place of no lack. And in him, every trial, it prunes you, it shapes you, it makes you increasingly perfect in him. And then, and then Paul says something which is a similar theme, but he says this, we also glory in our sufferings. Let's say that, glory in our sufferings, ready? Glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering uh, produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope does not put us to shame. Hope is not naivete. Hope is not making the best of a bad situation. Hope is not looking for the silver lining in that dark cloud. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is something real and hefty and solid. It's something you can wrap your arms around. Hope has substance. And the route to that kind of hope is only through the valley of suffering. There is no shortcut. You suffer 
you learn how to persevere, your character grows, and finally you work out what hope looks like. That's how it works. Aaron Reimer, who used to pastor here at Cornerstone, he posted this on Facebook recently. It says at the top, God will not give you more than you can handle, and it's, and it's scratched out. But it's a phrase which we hear quite regularly, right? But the reason it's scratched out is because it's not true. And then underneath, we read 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8 and 9, which says this, we do, not, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the, 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 the sentence of, of, of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Amen? And so it's a lie that God will never give you more than you can handle. But what is true is 2 Corinthians 10 verse 13 that says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted he will provide a way out so that you can endure it and so we have to realize that we all go through trials we all go through 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 temptations so at that moment that you feel isolated because of the trial or the temptation that you are going through or that suffering that moment that you feel on your own that you're an island realize that this is the very thing that unites you with the rest of humanity is that we all suffer And so our hope isn't in the absence of trial. It's not in the absence of temptation. It's not in the absence of suffering. That's not our hope. Our hope is based on God's faithfulness. And in that temptation, he will will enable you to endure it, to stand up under it, to see it through. And so if you are fearful here today, I give you 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 7. Okay, so if you're if some, someone who's fearful that, that you know that fear rules your life, then, then, then these verses are for you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. But maybe you're not fearful. Maybe you're rather complacent. You lean over the other way. You think, well... This stuff will never happen to me. It won't ever happen in my lifetime. You know, things are pretty good. And if it happens, then it happens. And, you know, there's not much I can really do about it. So why worry anyways? Now, I say to you here that this attitude of complacency has no place in the kingdom of the servant king. He calls us to resist complacency and to choose watchfulness. And so if you're complacent here today, I give you the next two verses. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 to 9, which says this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. 
You hear that, right? That a way to shake yourself out of this complacency that you're living in is to inform yourself about what's going on around the world in the suffering church. To read what's happening and to start to get down into the trenches with our suffering brothers and sisters around the world. Start walking a mile in their shoes in prayer. Start start coming alongside them in prayer. And you will watch as your heart gets changed from complacency to something else, to something watchful. And remember that Satan is prowling around. These are not idle words. He's looking and he's listening and he's strategizing and he knows you inside and out. And he's hungry. And if you're following Jesus, then you're on the menu. So resist him. Stand firm in the faith. There's no room for complacency. And then to everyone, whether you're fearful, whether you are complacent, I give you 1 Peter 5 verse 10, which says this, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. God's grace is promised. God's calling is promised. God's eternal glory is promised. Suffering is promised. God's restoration is promised. Your recreation into one who is strong and firm and steadfast, that's promised. So resist fear, resist complacency, and instead be absolutely prepared.